Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. Thank you, Maria, for unmuting me. Again, welcome to friends in Austin, to friends in New York. I think Geneva's in New York. Uh, and Vancouver, British Columbia, in Switzerland, and and other places that I don't even know about, and 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 also to Olivia in uh, in Santa Fe. Olivia, I'm going to come up and have coffee with you someday. Um, so I want to give a talk today that uh, I've been thinking about for a while. Uh, I I composed this yesterday afternoon. Uh, it's the second day of the monsoon season here in Albuquerque. It's come very early. Uh, and what that means is that the weather is cooler and rainy after a period of uh, 100 degree days, very dry, uh, and um, a big change that is, is part of a global weather pattern. Uh, and it, it, it has made it possible for me to be outside more and to really uh, enjoy the opportunities for being outside in Albuquerque. It's quite amazing what's going on. Right now it's about 64 degrees. It's overcast, although the sun's coming out. I have a little garden in my front patio and it's covered with bees, uh, bumblebees, and it look like honeybees and maybe some other types of flying insects. So it's quite a wonderful thing to be able to share. So I what this has put me in mind of is the beautiful poem about living a simple life uh, as a Zen practitioner, the Song of the Grass Roof Hermitage, which I'm now going to share on screen. And um, I would ask you to read along with me silently. Uh, if you have a copy, the people, the folks in the Zendo uh, can uh, read from the chant book and if you do not have a chant book you can read it on the screen with me here so um this is the song of the grass roof hermitage by sekuto kisen and i've been also reading uh, a wonderful book uh, it's not going to show up on the screen here very well it's by ben Connolly. it's called inside the grass hut living shito's classic zen poem so the Japanese version of Shito's name is Sekito, Sekito Kisen. So we've read this maybe a dozen times in the, in the time that I've been at Appamata over the last decade or more. And uh, it gets more beautiful each time. So he begins, I've built a grass hut where there's nothing of value. After eating, I relax and enjoy a nap. When it was completed, Fresh weeds appeared. Now it's been lived in, covered by weeds. The person in the hut lives here calmly, not stuck to inside, outside, or in between. Places worldly people live, he doesn't live. Realms worldly people love, he doesn't love. Though the hut is small, it includes the entire world. In ten feet square, an old man illumines forms in their nature. A Mahayana Bodhisattva trusts without doubt. 
The middling or lower or lowly can't help wondering, will this hut perish or not? Perishable or not, the original master is present, not dwelling north or south, east or west. Firmly based on steadiness, it can't be surpassed. A shining window below the green pines. Jade palaces or vermilion towers can't compare with it. Just sitting with head, un with, with head covered, all things are at rest. Thus, this mountain monk doesn't understand at all. Living here, he no longer works to get free. Who would proudly arrange seats trying to entice guests? Turn around the light to shine within, then just return. The vast, inconceivable source can't be faced or turned away from. Meet the ancestral teachers. Be familiar with their instructions. Bind, bind grasses to build a hut and don't give up. Let go of hundreds of years and relax completely. Open your hands and walk innocent. Thousands of words, myriads interpretations, are only to free you from obstructions. If you want to know the undying person in the hut, don't separate from this skin bag here and now. So here are some reflections from Ben Connolly. Um, part of his, it's a start, I'm, I'm picking up about halfway through the book, uh, Inside the Grass Hut. It's chapter 13, Life and Death is the Great Matter. Will this hut perish or not? It seems pretty clear that this hut will collapse, doesn't it? It's made of grass. It's not going to last forever. And anyway, why is this something we should wonder about? It's not such a big deal, just a hut. But she too is making another shift in the fluid views of identity presented in this poem. This hut has become ourselves. He says people wonder whether the hut will perish or not because the hut is now a name for the self, for the place in which we live, for whatever we call ourselves. We construct the self and we live in it. It's our abode. The question of whether we live on or die after the body stops functioning runs throughout human culture. Christianity promises eternal life after the death of the body. Many Buddhists believe that after death we are reborn in other forms. Many secularists believe the self ends when the physical processes of life cease in the body. Lots of answers have been presented and believed, but the presence of so many answers makes it seem like a big open question to me still. Seeing the pain associated with death was one of the principal things that set the Buddha on the path to try and find a way beyond suffering. And it was not long after my father's death, this is Ben Connolly, that I set, fet, that I set foot on the Zen path trying to deal with the pain. When, the, when death comes to someone close to us, we touch one of the most difficult and painful aspects of being human. The dissatisfaction that follows impermanence is in its most harsh and stark relief. It's as if no matter how strong or consoling your beliefs, still some part of you cannot be assuaged in the face of this reality. As someone who, has raised, who was raised humanist, Ben Connolly writes, with a belief that death is a final and irrevocable end to the self, I've often wondered whether dealing with death would be easier with the idea of an eternal hereafter. But from observing people, I can't say that I really know. 
Shito doesn't seem to know whether or not things die. This is a question he doesn't answer. He doesn't even ask it, actually, only saying that the middle or lowly might be worried about the fate of the hut, which is odd. It seems pretty clear that we die, right? There are lots of ideas about what that of what happens after death, but what kind of person would claim that there is no death? As someone who has stood who stood in the room while my father's body went from warm to cold, I can tell you it seemed very clear that death had occurred. But I'll tell you something else. As I walk around on the face of this earth, saying things just like my father used to say, in a voice very much like his, seeing thoughts and views that my father held that then appear in my own mind, it's not so clear to me that death has occurred. In Genjo Koan, Dogen tells us that we may think we aren't enlightened, but we are. Very encouraging. He says, when you first seek Dharma, you imagine that you are far away from its environs. But Dharma is already constantly and correctly transmitted. You are immediately your original self. He then explains that this is true because we are impermanent that though we may think we are a continuous being looking out of our hut, perhaps, at a changing world, there is no fixed resting place in any abode. There is only change. He then points out that since we are just change, rather than a fixed thing, we can't die, because we were never really born in the first place. We are not things separate from anything, things with brief, impermanent lives. There is only an unknowable, infinite, interdependent process of transience, of the universe realizing itself. Or, we might say, there is only realization, enlightenment. To sum up, you're enlightened because you don't exist. So you don't have to worry about dying because you were never born. This sounds very heady, but Dogen then goes on to give a very simple instruction in the midst of it all. Practice, immediate, practice intimately and return to where you are. This is the means by which we can see that nothing at all has an unchanging self. How we can see we are just an aspect of infinite transformation. This is the path to seeing beyond birth and death. So here we have Dogen. Here's Ben Connolly quoting Dogen saying, focus on the here and now. And in the poem, the last lines are, if you want to know the undying person in the hut, don't separate from the skin bag here and now. So there's these echoes throughout the, the Zen teaching from the Buddha's day down to the present. And they bring us back to the same point. To practice the Buddha way, this is Ben Connolly in a later chapter. To practice the Buddha way is simple. Just come home to the present moment, to the here and now. Even in the earliest days of Buddhism, there were already thousands of teachings, but Buddha instructed that there is one practice that can open up the freedom and wisdom offered by all of them. Mindfulness of the body through mindfulness of breath. To be mindful of breath is beautiful and powerful in and of itself, but it is also a technique that allows the mind to, re to rest in the present, in this place, in the body, to truly taste the essential movement of our body that allows us to be. 
to see how what we think of as outside comes into us and sustains us and how we give it right back without any planning or reviewing required. In this very moment, air that has been all across the universe and coalesced around our planet is in the process of becoming an essential part of your existence and the air leaving your body that is an inseparable part of everything uh, or then becomes an inseparable part of everything else. She too's final instruction to realize timeless intimacy and arrive at the deep peace shows uh, he shows throughout his poem is for us to just realize this body in this place at this time. A couple of my friends love Shitu's use of the term skin bag here in this last line. It's a little laugh to remind us not to take ourselves too seriously, but sometimes people find it a bit harsh and jarring. After all, the beauty and ease of the earlier lines in his poem, the poem make, then takes on a rough edge here at the end. This is actually a very old and powerful lesson. The idea of seeing the body as a skin bag goes back to the earliest Buddhist teachings. In the Four Foundations of Mindfulness Sutra, just after we learn mindfulness of breath, the Buddha teaches us to be aware of the body as a bag of skin holding all kinds of nasty stuff. Yuck. We need this line to remind us that when we are comfortable, it's good to stay in the moment without holding on to the feeling. And, we are, and when we are uncomfortable, which is plenty of the time, particularly in sitting, we should not separate from the body. Moments of discomfort are precisely when the mind will want to take us away into some idea of how things should be, how we can make them the way we want, or why things are all wrong. We find peace not by going away from our suffering or dissatisfaction, but by completely offering ourselves to what is. There is no way to actually put into words, or to put this into words, as words inherently create ideas of things which are separate. But we can truly not separate from this body here and now. Already here, now, body and awareness are not separate things. This truth can be realized through Buddhist practice. It can take many years of meditation, or we can find all sorts of frustration on the way, but it can be realized. It is, in fact, realizing itself right now. You can't avoid it. Here at the end of this work, we are encouraged to see the way to realize this possibility of making the real promise of having our lives be just a contribution to the wellness of all things. Uh, this promise is simply to bring our whole selves to this body, this place, and this moment, here and now. I love that Ben Connolly at the end uh, is talking about, has, has made a shift. And instead of this being just a solitary activity that we are engaged in, turning our light within, stepping back, uh, stepping away from the world, that all of a sudden he is talking about making the real promise of having our lives be just a contribution to the wellness of all things. And I, as I've read through this book and as I read through that poem, I often think that there's something missing, uh, or at least for me, that I miss. And that is something that, that Peg and Flint talk about all the time and that they really emphasize in the teaching at Appamata. And that is that we are together, 
that when we say our chants on weekday mornings, we say, beings are numberless, I vow to free them. And then we say, beings are numberless, we vow to free them. That it is a shared um, process of discovery that we cannot master on our own, that we need each other for this. And um, so I want to, to suggest a, 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 um, that we go into breakout rooms and that we share an experience now. And I'm gonna introduce something else, which uh, comes from a talk that Flint gave uh, back in early April in Austin, which um, deserves many Dharma talks on their own. But it, it was a very beautiful moment when Flint was reflecting on his teachers in the past and, and, his, and the process of, of uh, Dharma transmission for him working with Peg and with Vicki Austin from the San Francisco Zen Center. And he said that at one point, Vicki Austin uh, asked him uh, about his teacher, Blanche Hartman, pardon me. She asked him, what is Blanche saying to you? And he said, apparently without hesitation, he said, she's telling me to take care of my mudra. So this is the, I want this to be the focus of the, of the breakout and the shared experiment that I would like you to engage in. Um, think about what a mudra is. The most common mudra, I can't show it here very well, but uh, is to make a bowl with your fingers nested inside each other and your finger and your thumb tips lightly touching each other. This is, of course, a great mindfulness exercise. Uh, since as your mind drifts away, your thumbs will fall apart or they will smash into each other, showing that you have tension in your body. And to return to that over and over again is a wonderful mindfulness experiment. But having Flint tell this story in this way, in the context of this epic journey that he was describing of connection and connection and connection, um, I have been experiencing this thought of taking care of my mudra in a different way, not just as a, not just as mindfulness, not just as something that I drift in and out of, but as a very energetic sharing with the world. And I, I feel like an energy and I can't tell whether it is something like energy passing through me that is pouring out, or if it is energy passing through me that the world is pouring in or if there's a difference. But here's the experiment that I want you to do. I would like to ask people to break out into groups of two or three. Uh, however, the, there, there may be some, uh, three is the, the ideal number, I think, but there may be one or two groups that can be only two. And um, uh, to uh, uh, take turns, sitting for two minutes, we'll need timekeepers within the group, take, take turns sitting and taking care of your mudra and seeing what effect that has on you. Let the light be shining within. Know that you're a skin bag, that everything is alive within you, that has always been alive within you and that you are intimately connected with everything in the universe. 
And here you are in this moment with this willed activity to care for your mudra. And just sit with that for two minutes and the other people in the group simply observe. This may not be so easy for, the, for those online. For those online, it'd be important to turn your camera on if you can <clears throat> so that the other people can be aware of your physical presence through sight of your of your image and at the end, end of two minutes that you switch at the end of and and you know so on for for two or three people uh for groups of two i guess it would be three minutes instead of two minutes uh, and that at the end, uh, when everybody has sat and everybody has observed, then uh, each person uh, take a couple of minutes to describe what it was like sitting in the presence of others with this focus on caring for a mudra. And, and then uh, also the experience of observing and holding another person while they are doing that. Okay? Does that sound possible? Does any questions about that? I had the wonderful experience of being in a breakout room with Marla and Maria, and they had wonderful things to say and wonderful things to share, and their presence was so great while they were taking turns sitting and, and while they were observing and, and holding me and holding each other in, in such a loving way. I really loved it. Any other uh, reactions or thoughts to share with the larger group? Um, Appa Mada will have to unmute themselves if they wish to speak. But we have Genev who's just raised a hand. It was, um, thank you, Joel. Um, when you described it, I was like, what? And then when we did it, it was just like a joy fest. It was like each of us magnified, you know, the peace and the joy and the, and the softening and the flowing. Um, and and we all thought we'd feel self-conscious, but we felt instead we felt held and loved um, and safe. And um, it was awesome. I just wanted to thank you so much. It really lit, lit me up in a most wonderful way. And it felt very relational, even when I had my eyes closed and we weren't all doing the same thing. I still felt relational all the time. Becky, hi. Um, I, I, I thought it was very funny when we were given the assignment to, I'll show you your mudra if you'll show me mine. And of, <laughs> course, of course, online, we couldn't actually sit in a way that people could see what we were doing. And so that was part of what we did right afterwards was to, was to hold our hands in the air in a way that someone could see what we were doing. 
And um, we had some discussion about the variations on, on mudra that are what we do with our hands at all, uh, that run throughout various traditions as well as within our own practice. And so that was, that was pretty good too. So, but it was, it was the intimacy of the three of us doing it together, facing each other fully, being with each other as part of the primary purpose of it. The intimacy of that was huge. And I thank you. John? You are unmuted. Okay. Well, I think I'm hesitating and maybe we are in our group because we had details to work with. We couldn't get the hands placed in front of the camera and that was something we worked on over and over so it was taking up time. And then just comparing what was going on, looking at each other. See, you know, nobody was totally still. It felt like I know what I was doing and I thought so much is going through my mind and that's just part of life. I can't get that to go away. So we were observing things and I know I felt that it's a really useful thing to be doing, you know, when we're sitting to work on that idea some more of being present and letting everything fall away. But we, nobody does it perfectly because your mind is always busy. That is so true. Yeah, somebody else may have something else to say. Well, well, Joan, can I ask a question? Uh, were you uh, in a breakout room with other people? Yes, and that's why I'm wondering whether someone else might like to speak. Bill did it. Well, I, I, but my question, I, I have a quick question. So here you are, you're like, oh man, what am I supposed to be doing? Joel gave bad directions here. Am I supposed to have these in front of the camera or what? All these thoughts going on, was it helpful to know that the people in your breakout room were sharing a similar experience and were holding you with care? Did you feel that? Did you feel a connection with others? No, I had my nature, the one that's sort of bossy and controlling was sort of helping to run the group. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but it was. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> Somebody else, I'd like to hear other people. I'd just like to say that um, I think when there's something about taking care of the mudra that um, helps me take care of everything, it's like I'm taking care of the mudra and if I feel it slipping, I know that I'm slipping. I know that my thoughts are slipping or that I've drifted. And then I come back to the mudra and, and make sure it's there again. You know, it's kind of, and, and when we get still enough and, and, and really pay attention to the mudra, all the thoughts and everything begin to still. And that's when I begin to feel a real connection with others. You know, really, it, it's that, because it's everything that we are, all the habitual thinking that gets in the way of, of us being able to feel that connection, like Joan was talking about, you know, it really gets in the way and it comes up again. And then I realize my mudra slipped, so I'm, I'm back on it. You know, it's like, take care of the mudra. And then I know that I'm present and I'm still, 
And it's like, and it's a wonderful thing, you know, we do it in a call me that giving each other permission to just sit and look at each other. And in the world, in life, we all get on and we have conversations, but we don't really sit with each other in full presence and just having that permission to sit and just be and just look at each other really begin to, to to instill a real connection starts to starts to submerge starts to appear you know when we get still enough to really just be present in a loving state of loving presence you know when we get ourselves in a state of loving presence and to really be with another person it's a it's a beautiful thing to have permission to do and i really appreciated having permission to just sit and be and not speak and just be together whilst taking care of of my mudra and 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 you know i think when i when i really focus on my mudra it really brings to light everything that i'm doing and i can more easily get it out of the way than when i'm not so i really appreciate the opportunity it was just a wonderful nourishing thing to do so thank you and who are we having next was it bridget <laughs> bridget's hand and then jay you don't want to okay Okay. Well, I found it interesting. I found it difficult to even get my mudra started because I was so conscious of feeling like I wasn't meeting the expectations of the instruction because I couldn't arrange my camera to see my hands. And then there was an audio difficulty. So it was, but it was good to realize that what I did focus on when I finally just captured a few seconds of sitting, I was gazing at something in my in my room where I was sitting where, that I've never gazed at before. And it reminded me of just having a fixed point of reference and looking at the, just that present thing was, it was as if I received a glimpse of what the peace and the tranquility. And I felt supported with the presence of others, even though I was a little bit anxious and agitated. So that was good. Thanks. Thank you, Bridget. I, yeah, um, I don't know, Bridget talking made me raise my hand again. So, um, you know, uh, initially, uh, as I told um, my group, I was concerned that if I would be self-conscious, but they exuded uh, so much peace and love that once I started sitting, I just felt um, that energy and supported, right? And with my mind focused on my mudra and my posture, I, I couldn't think of anything else because everything was just to my mudra and being there. And once I fell into that, I I was transported. So I I appreciate this um this experience. It was marvelous for me. So I thank you. I thank you. Genevieve? I just wanted to say another couple of things about the mudra. Um, focusing on it was really grounding and I, I was able to really stay with it. Um, and then, although my experience of it kept changing and at first I felt very strongly somehow that it was a microcosm of my body. And so that there's this little body and then there's this other body that's trying to be this, you know, 
attuned to the universe and this structurally sound and and um and then I heard little tiny cheeps outside and all of a sudden I had little baby birds in my in my hands it was a nest I felt it being a nest and then the wind started really blowing and I imagined it as the hut in the story and I thought this this would not fall over. This is a really sound structure. Um, so I just wanted to share. Um, and I really appreciate being given um, the guidance to focus on the mudra because that's something I'll do now. Genev, wow. That was great. The birds, the wind, how astonishing. And how perfect. So my apologies to everyone that I misled with my imperfect instructions and and thank you for your persistence and your willingness to engage. It's it's that's what the experiment's about, I hope. And and uh, this is just a wonderful experience for me. And I, has everyone uh, heard Flint's talk from early April? that he gave at the KMFA studios. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back and listen to it again. But, I, but that, that 10 second section of it, where he was talking about this felt connection with Blanche um, and what, he, what she was saying to him in this very simple way, I'm sure, I'm sure it's, an echo of something that she said to him in life, but it just seems extraordinarily meaningful to me. So, okay, well, let's, um, it's now 10 o'clock. Let's um, finish with our service and uh, end for today. And please know I'm so appreciative.